You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. This week's reading was edifying, huh? I'll tell you what, we better pray double before we start, just in case. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that we can be here tonight. Thank you for the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, drank the cup of the wrath that is rightfully ours to the very bottom and left us not one drop for ourselves. Thank you in your mercy and grace you reached out to draw us to you and your spirit regenerated us, made us alive in Christ, flooded our hearts with love for our Savior, drew us into the family of God. We rejoice here as members of the church. And as we study tonight your work of providence, we pray for clear thinking, clear speech, for edification, that we might learn and grow and encourage one another in faith. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right. So, yeah, we had two stinkers and then a uh, a hero of the faith. So that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun. We're getting close to the end of this book. Did you notice that? So, looking ahead... I think it's all going to come together pretty well in that we we normally kill about an hour's time on the book. I don't know if that'll be tonight or not. We'll see. Uh, but because we will finish the book early, um, I don't know how many more weeks of the book we've got left, only a couple, I think, then uh, that will give us time to catch up on the syllabus because we're sort of behind there a little bit. So I think it'll all kind of come to the finish line at about the same time. That's the plan. May 8th last day. If we finish sooner, praise the Lord, but if not May 8th, we will finish. Okay, so that's your plan. So tonight, the father of Protestant liberalism, the father of Protestant liberalism, wants to take a stab at his name, Freddy, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of Protestant liberalism. What was the, um, I mean, he is, a, he is an Enlightenment thinker, so let's just begin with that. What is the Enlightenment, as it was introduced to you in this book? What's the Enlightenment all about? Say what? Darkness, yes. Also known as the age of reason, yes. Okay, did everybody hear that, what he said? Okay, so the application of the scientific method and human reason and so forth applied across multiple disciplines and then ultimately to theology, yes. What else stands out about it? There was a rejection of something. Religious authority was rejected. Where does he say that? What page is that? 
2.16, second paragraph. Yeah, there we go. With regard to Christianity, enlightenment thinking essentially resulted in the rejection of divine authority and religious, or divine revelation and religious authority, and in their place put human reason and individual autonomy. Notice the, um, the dates for Schleiermacher. When did he live? Like 100 years ago, 50 years ago? Born 1768, right? so 10 years before the founding of America, roughly. That makes him in most of our thinking kind of like a really ancient kind of guy, doesn't it? And I think one of the things that stands out for that is the recognition that ideas have consequences that extend way beyond the original purveyor of that idea, and with often unforeseen consequences. You think he was an evil guy? Maybe. Okay, maybe. What do you think? Is he presented as like a, just a evil, wretched kind of guy? Okay, good. Thank you, Michael. Let's tease that out a little bit. That's right. He wasn't, in his mind, trying to destroy Christianity. He was trying to save it. Save it from what? The modern enlightened mind. In what way? Right. Right. Or never come back at all. Yeah, that's right. So deism is a product of the Enlightenment. And that's the, the idea of the, of the clockmaker who makes the creation, builds in all the natural laws that cause it to function, winds it up, and walks away. <laughs> How would they answer the resurrection from the dead? Do they believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead? No, why not? It's scientifically impossible. It's supernatural. That's right. So the age of reason or the enlightenment ruled supernatural out of bounds. Because by definition, miracles and the supernatural occur outside of the natural realm, right? It's the intrusion of God into the natural realm. And so they've immediately ruled it out. Well, when you rule out the supernatural and miracles, what do you rule out? <laughs> the spiritual world, okay. Let's 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 click them off, guys. What what goes? God's order is, is a yes, a lost byproduct, but some let's specific doctrines. The doctrine of creation. What was substituted? Not not in Schleiermacher's day, but not long after. Evolution, Darwinism. What else? Virgin birth is gone. Substitutionary atonement is gone. The resurrection from the dead is gone. Sin in the natural man is gone. Eternity. Heaven. Hell. It all falls. But they didn't abandon the terms. 
What did they do? They started redefining them. They started redefining them. Okay? Which is what liberalism is all about, the redefinition of terminology. Yes, exactly. Generation to generation. Yeah, in, uh, on page 215, your author says something I think is really profound here. In that first, let's see, yeah, first paragraph on the bottom. Uh, well, it actually starts in the middle. It says, from the first century, through the periods of Reformation and Revival, the main question was, what is true Christianity? You remember? I mean, we have been tracing this with all the various controversies and heresies and councils trying to get at this, these, you know, clarifying these questions. What is true Christianity? The answers were varied. It's Catholic, it's Lutheran, it's Reformed, and so on, by the time of the Reformation. However, Enlightenment thinkers changed the question to, is Christianity true? Is it true? And mainly answered, no, at least as historically understood. So that's a complete change. Yeah, well... What would be their answer to that? There was no garden, there was no tree, there was no Adam and Eve. Yeah. So it was all outside the boundaries of the rational mind. Which had a profound impact, by the way, on John Locke and, and the founders of good old U.S. of A. So I won't get into it tonight. Were they Christians? Were they Christian deists? Were they straight up deists? There's some interesting literature you can trace on your own with regard to that. What was the um, the church, the Christian church, that really be, is a product of the Enlightenment? Do you remember? Did you catch that in your reading? The Unitarian. Unitarians. Okay? The Unitarians. That's right. You see that on the bottom of page 216. Deism was the religion observed in Unitarian churches founded in England and America in the late 18th century. Even though Unitarian may consider itself Christian, it rejected pretty much everything that made Christianity distinct. For example, the Nicene Creed and the other historic creeds and confessions. So the, the Unitarians reject all of the creeds. All of them which means they reject all historic Christian forms of worship and instead focus on what? What is the byproduct of liberal Protestant Christ Christianity? Say it again. Uh, it's it's man-centered, not God-centered. Yes. What's man's, what is sin for them? Uh, yes, but it, um, it's not a good question, so let me try it. Let me back up, take another stab at it. Orthodox Christianity, rightly understood, deals with indiv the individual and God. Reconciles 
God and man. Unitarianism, the Enlightenment, the rejection of the historic creeds, substitutes a different purpose for the church. What was that purpose? How was sin defined? Sorry? Yes. Right. So, save the culture, save the, save the country. Say it again. Save the world. Social justice. Care for the poor. Care for the downtrodden. Moralism, yes. But, again, we're, we're going to be the most charitable we can be in all of this. <laughs> With these lost people is that they care about human problems. And so for them, salvation is, or the bringing in of the kingdom of God is the, the uh, overturning of all of these social ills. Poor you'll always have with you. Yes, that is true. But think, think with me now. I mean, and, you know, we're we're leapfrogging a little bit ahead of uh, Schleiermacher in this. But what kind of social ills were prevalent in that time? This is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, by the way. What kind of social ills were available in the or prevalent in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution? You know, child labor, sweatshops, horrendous working conditions. Okay, that's one. The growth of cities in a, in a way that was unprecedented prior. This growth of cities, was it, was it with prosperous people? It was capitalism. It was the ugly side of capitalism. So, yeah, cities that were incredibly overcrowded and, and in squalid conditions, lacking running water and facilities and so forth. Okay? What else? Slavery, thank you. I was hoping somebody would say it. Yeah, it's black slavery. Great social evil. So it's easy to see if you jettison orthodoxy and just redefine sin as a, as a societal problem and thus salvation is the the uh, overturning of these societal problems. This is what drives liberal Protestantism. This is what drives Unitarianism. I know this for a fact because I have a sister who's an ordained minister in a Unitarian church and is brilliant, by the way. Multiple degrees from Ivy League universities. Very bright. What drives her is her attempts at writing social wrongs. And she's lost. Completely lost. What kind of an upbringing did Schleiermacher have? Say it again? Pietistic. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he was a pietist. German, well, went to German universities, let's put it that way. <laughs> so 
So greatly, greatly influenced and an influencer of this. Actually, he was born, it says, in present-day Poland, page 217. Educated in the early education and the pietistic tradition. Began to have significant doubts about what he was being taught. Was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with historic Christian doctrines. Okay. What did he reduce religion to? In its essence, page 218. Sola experientia. Yeah, that's right. The middle of uh, page 218, it says, The breakthrough here is this. If religion is primarily experiential rather than doctrinal or ethical, it is safe from the attacks of the Enlightenment because it is outside the realm of reason and science. You see what he just did? He invented postmodernism. That's in its early roots. Yes, it's exactly right. All around him, in his university training and so forth, he is seeing these skeptics, and so he wants to save Christianity from the skeptics. And he just yanks it out and creates a new form. Keeps the same verbiage, redefines it. Spirit, you know that, that um, it's now experiential, it's beyond the realm of reason, it's outside of doctrine. Huh? Fascinating, isn't it? How about his view of Scripture? Page 219. Yes. The Bible is not revelation from God that must be accepted, but rather the record of human religious experience that we must learn from. Yeah. Okay. Well, that gets him off the hook, he thinks, from all of the apparent contradictions in Scripture that were being raised by the skeptics. Just, it's easy. We just... Not try to defend it that way. It's just myths, it's legends, religious experience. We can learn from it. The creation account. It just it becomes a, a story that the ancient primitive man around the campfire at night, they'd sit and they'd look up in the sky, the night sky, and they'd see the stars and, and they'd say, I wonder where they came from. And and an old man with a long beard began to spin this story about these two mythical creatures in a garden with an apple and and so forth. Yeah, there it is. Okay. How about Jesus? Next paragraph. Just a good person. Yep. Perfect example of God consciousness. Right? So that will be their response to you. Anybody come from liberal Christianity here in this room? Been saved out of it? Or brought up in it? Or family members or anything like that? Right? Are we all so fundamentalists? We've got no contacts with it at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jesus is just a good teacher. 
just a good teacher? Problem is, if you deal seriously with what he said, in what way would you define him as a good teacher? That's the whole C.S. Lewis, that he's what, liar, lunatic, or lord. He wouldn't allow himself to be defined that way. Redemption comes not from trusting in Jesus as our substitutionary sacrifice, but rather following his model of God consciousness. Think there's hell in liberal Protestantism? Think they have hell? See what? Social hell, yeah. Yeah, they'll cancel you, but... No, there's no hell. Because there's no wrath. In the end, everyone. They're universalists. Unitarian. That means the Trinity. It's out. It's just the unknown God out there, the deist. So Unitarian, universalists. Everyone. Many roads to the top of the mountain. Each finds his own way. Uh, well, it's been morphing. So it, it, if you roll it back 40 years, it was he, she, yeah, egalitarian, whatever, but it has been, it has been radically feminized. And so now God is a woman, a female. Which sounds remarkably like Gnosticism, by the way. So, okay. Well, let's see. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Yes. Yeah, isn't that an interesting statement? So, what that would mean, I'm assuming is that a systematic theology text follows, generally speaking, a, a format. It, be, it begins with, well, it depends, either prolegomena or first, you know, prior things, first things. And then it would be theology proper and then work its way down. And so I suspect that's what that means, is that's how he organized it. Okay, good, good question. Where do you think he is? It's <laughs> who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? Poor man is lost. Badly so. Badly so. Okay. So next we uh, we come to Albrecht Ritzel, the framer of Protestant liberalism. <laughs> so we have the father who provided the intellectual lift. We now have the framer who built out the, you know, the, the structure. Notice he lives later, 1822 to 1889. Okay. By the way, liberal Protestantism took a serious punch in the nose with the coming of World War I and all of their optimism about humanity. World War One, thirty million people killed. 
kind of dims the light of man's goodness. <laughs> okay? Anyway. All right. So, let's talk about Mr. Richel. Notice where he was educated. Page 221 on the bottom. German theological training is the graveyard of American evangelicalism. Okay? I, I will repeat myself. German theological training is the graveyard of American evangelicalism. What do I mean by that? I mean that many a good fundamentalist young man who got his master's level training here in an evangelical seminary went on for doctrinal training in Europe, Germany in particular, but it had, it had jumped to England and so forth, and became so screwed up they came back an atheist and then imported that unbelief into many churches. It's um, it's almost like a guarantee. Someone said to me, you know, I'm yeah, I'm going to Tubingen or whatever to get my doctoral degree. <laughs> See you later. You're dead. You're dead. Okay. You notice where we taught University of Tubingen, Halle, Bonn, University of Göttingen. Jeff, you know all these. It is, and when we get to fundamentalism and look at its uh, the effect of German higher criticism upon evangelicalism, we will look at the sad case of Fuller Theological Seminary. And that's exactly what happened to that school. Killed it. Still exists. That's right. Because it's the embracement. Yes. It's the embracing of enlightenment. And so it is then the substitution of human reason and knowledge above the authority of Scripture, and, and that's the death of it. Yep. Okay. What was the primary attribute of God for Ritzel? Page 223, yes, God is loving. Okay. Is God love? Yes, absolutely. Scripture makes it very emphatic. The problem was how they defined it, how they defined it. And what about the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God for them? All of humanity united by love and morality. Say what? A utopia on earth. Yes. Right? Why? Because there is no afterlife in any Christian sense. This is all there is for them. Okay? Talked about this. this is the origin of the social gospel. You see that on the bottom of uh, the last, uh, the first large paragraph there on page first full paragraph on two twenty three. The highest good of the Christian is not preparing for the afterlife in heaven in the future, but rather promoting the kingdom of God on earth in the present. What about Jesus? 
What do you think? What was what was his ideas about Jesus? Just another good man. That's right. Not virgin born. Not dying as a substitute. Good man who got swept up in something, ended up crucified. Okay. What was, what would we say, uh, it's in a footnote here. Um, adoptionism, that's right. Yeah, footnote three. Right? Jesus is not the God man, he is only the good man who provided the teachings and the model that the rest of us humans should follow in order to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Essentially early Christian heresy known as adoptionism. Okay, he was a good man adopted by God in a unique way because he was such a a good man, good teacher, and so forth. So he became a guru, if we want to use that kind of terminology. Jesus as your guru. Fascinating, isn't it? Do they use the, the Bible at all in liberal churches? Yeah, they do. They do. Or misuse the Bible. So they selectively read. What about the golden rule? I, I See, this is all near and dear to my heart because as a child, before I became an atheist, I was brought up in a liberal Protestant church. I left it at 12 years old or whatever it was. But... It was always the golden rule, which is, he who has the gold makes the rules. No, there's a different one. <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was the entire ethic of the church. That's what we were taught. That's how life was to be arranged. Follow Jesus. So we would hear a Sunday school story about him, you know, feeding the the um, the five thousand or something like that, and and what it would be is that it's not that he created food, it's that his example, while well, the example of the little boy sharing his lunch, uh, set such a profound example for the crowd that everybody began sharing their lunches with each other, and. That's how the 5,000 got fed. Is that satisfying? <laughs> they really shared, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, how do you come up with it? I know. Or Jesus had prearranged and there was a supply of it behind him in a, in a cave and he would just keep taking it out. I mean, they get very inventive. Very inventive. Okay. All right. Page 224. What about sin? What a ritual. Sin is anything contrary to the highest good, the kingdom of God. Sin basically is selfishness, the opposite of love for others. It's, fun. it's interesting, though, because there's never any discussion about its origin. Right? Like, where did selfishness come from? If that's the origin, where did selfishness come from? It's never addressed. It's never addressed. But we'll just teach people not to be selfish, and that will 
Take care of it. Oh, let's see here. Maybe we'll just finish with this. Page 225. Rachel continued what Schleiermacher began, and in the theology of, theologies of these two, we can see some themes that came to characterize classical Protestant liberal theology. If you run across this, and you will, you will at some point. First, liberal theology adopted enlightenment thinking in order to make Christianity relevant to the modern age. Second, God was to be understood primarily through human experience of him and his work in the world. The God of liberal theology became very human-oriented, and the Christ of liberal theology became merely a human, although the ideal role model for the rest of us. And third, the bottom there, the essence of Christianity was morality. Jesus was seen to be the great example of moral living. And finally, salvation was a matter of doing your best and following the golden rule. Closely connected to this was a belief in universalism. Everybody would eventually be saved. John. Um, try harder. No kind of eternal consequence, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there'd be some, certainly your parents wouldn't be too thrilled with you if, you know, you're doing those kinds of things. I mean, they're still living in this world and they're borrowing God's truth in order to live, <laughs> all the while using the very breath he grants them to deny his existence. But yeah. So there's contradictions all over the place. Okay. How about Niebuhr's uh, critical description? A liberal theology in general has become a classic. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Specious twaddle. Right? Terrible. It is terrible. Well, I am glad we don't have to end on that downer so turn the page well i guess it's, you have to turn the page it's right there huh let's look at a lion of the faith a lion of the faith j gresham machen what do we know about j gresham machen B.B. Warfield was his professor and mentor. That's right. So let's stop and say, what do we know about B.B. Warfield? Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. What do we know about him? Should have been in this book. But, you know, there's too many guys. Sometimes I wish he'd not... Well, I understand why he included the last two, because they were been very influential in a negative way. <laughs> All right, back to B.B. Warfield. What do we know about B.B. Warfield? Anything? He was a lion against liberal theology, and in particular, the defense of what? Scripture. Inerrancy. Yes, that's right. His famous um, 
book here, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, 1948. Okay? It's a good read, by the way. Still that, still out there. Probably about 450 pages, something like that. So, you know, one of those lightweight kind of books. All right? So, where did B.B. Warfield teach? At Princeton. At Princeton. In the days in which Princeton was the citadel of Orthodox Reformed theology. Okay. So Machen studied under Warfield. By the way, Warfield's life is a fascinating uh, study. His wife was uh, very, very ill from their honeymoon. I can't remember if she caught she caught something I, I, on their honeymoon, if I remember right, like a virus or something. Lightning strike. That's right. And was an invalid for the rest of her life. He cared for her. He, he lived next to the campus, and he would go teach a class and go home and care for her and then go teach a class and come home. That was his entire life. Yeah. Very devoted man. Okay. So Machen studied under him and then replaced him when B.B. Warfield died. 1929. 21. Yep, you're right. There it is. 1921. Machen stepped into his shoes, became one of the leading defenders of orthodoxy over liberalism. Was he well received for that? All kinds of accolades. Princeton Theological Seminary said, oh man, this is a warrior. We want a bust of him in the library and so forth. Is that what happened? Nah. What happened? Yeah. Tried for heresy. Convicted. Defrocked. Kicked out of the PCUSA. Yeah. All there right on page 229. Resigned in 1929. Why? Because Princeton Theological Seminary had become infected with German higher criticism. It was dying, arguably dead by that point. So, Machen and some others, we'll get to this in the syllabus some weeks hence, formed and pioneered a new school by the name of Westminster Theological Seminary. Okay? They moved the, the um, conservative academic faculty, which was a powerful factor, faculty, and they just went in mass over and formed Westminster. Kind of reminds me of what happened actually in the founding of the Master Seminary. When the faculty of Talbot, which was going sideways, left in mass and formed Master Seminary in 1986, I believe it was. Yeah. See, because there's a deal that seminaries never last. Bible schools never last. A couple of generations, and then they go liberal. First generation believes the gospel. Second generation assumes the gospel. Third generation loses the gospel. So, 
You can see they put him on trial for insubordination. <laughs> Stripped him of his ordination. Crazy stuff. Okay. Notice here on page 229 in the middle, under contribution, as we have already seen, liberal theology speaks in terms common to historic Christianity, i.e. deity, inspiration, sin, and even claims to believe in the concepts, but the terms mean very different things to them. I wrote in the margin of my book, Weasel Words. Weasel Words. Because that's exactly what they do. They redefine the terms... So you, if unless you are very careful about nailing these things down, you'll think you have agreement. You don't got agreement at all. They're all using weasel words. That's how they can sign a conservative doctrinal statement as a faculty member and not believe a word of it. They just redefine it all in their minds. That's how you get liberals at Southern Seminary. exactly how it happens yeah yep what do you say uh, figures don't lie but liars will figure well kind of that way with language <laughs> okay. okay notice the bottom here these now these liberal preachers speak about faith but they do not tell what faith is Speak about faith, but they do not tell what faith is. All right. Let's see. Talks about his, uh, I think, his most important work on page 231. Major's most straightforward confrontation of liberal theology was Christianity and liberalism, in which he tries to demonstrate, I wouldn't say try, I think he conclusively demonstrates that Christianity that the Christianity of Protestant liberal Protestant theology is not Christianity at all. Okay? Good book. Put it on your, you know, your to-do list. Okay? Christianity and liberalism J Grayson J Gresham Machen 179 pages. 180 where he convincingly makes the case that it's an entirely different religion. It's not, it's not Christianity gone off, you know, kind of off the rails a little bit or, or something, you know, it's an entirely different religion, which means it's not reformable. It's not reformable, which means that if you are part of a liberal Protestant church, and, and God saves your soul, the first thing you need to do is get up and run. Because you are in a false religion. The longer you stay, the greater the chance that your new birth is stillborn. Yes, we'll, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but yes, Roman Catholicism is not reformable because of its authority structures. So Roman Catholicism maintains the tenets of historic Christianity. They just have added stuff and placed an anathema on the gospel, which is like 
kind of a bad thing. But at least when you talk to a to to a um, an Orthodox Roman Catholic and you talk about Christ, you're still you're talking about the second person of of the Trinity. I mean, they are Orthodox in these things. They they do believe these early creeds and confessions. Liberal Protestantism, not a stitch of it. Okay? It's an entirely different religion. Masquerading. <laughs> Masquerading. Okay. Oh, let's see. Is there anything else we want to say about all of this? Well, yeah, we'll just read this, okay? But with the, I'm on page 231, last paragraph, middle of it. But with the rejection of a high view of Scripture, other beliefs were quickly rejected or redefined. The Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ as a substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, miracles, original sin, and so on. These issues became the battleground in the modernist fundamentalist controversies, which we will deal with a few weeks from now in your syllabus. Okay? This is the, the foundation of those great battles. I'll bring in some more books at that time to recommend to you to read. Okay, I'm going to give you a stack of suggestions. Yes. Well, it, it, okay, uh, good question. So fundamentalism is not a monolith. And uh, there, there, there was the, the Machen strain, which was still had rigorous scholarship. And then there's the uh, independent fundamental Baptist strain, <laughs> which was not so rigorous in their academics. More cultural. They may be wrong, but they're never in doubt. They're never in doubt. Yeah, and, and I am a early product of what was called the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, or IFCA, I Fellowship Completely Alone, or IFCA, I Fight Christians Anywhere. <laughs> so yeah. But I'm thankful for certain aspects of it because they did hold the line on the scriptures. We are on page 23 in the syllabus. 23 on the bottom, Salvation Under Roman Catholicism. So we are finishing the third section of this syllabus, covering the years 590 to 1517. We've entitled it Darkness and Withdrawal, the Rise of Islam, the Rise of Monasticism, and the Rise of the Papacy. We looked last week at the Mass, which is a foundational pillar of Roman Catholicism, take away the Mass and you will lose Roman Catholicism. It will never go away, ever. Nor will it change. Nor will it change. If it were, it's, it's like a, the um, capstone in an arch. If it were removed, the entire arch would collapse. Okay? They moved it from Latin to English, but nothing changed. So, let's talk about salvation under the Roman Catholic system. Begins with this very simple statement. Salvation in Catholic theology is a process rather than an event. 
We are on page 23 on the bottom. It is a process rather than an event. It begins with the sacrament of baptism, which is understood to remit original sin and all personal sin, which the recipient sincerely repents from. So, as, as an infant, it remits original sin of the infant. That's why the infant is baptized. It remits original sin. If you come into Roman Catholicism as an adult, then your baptism, your Catholic baptism, takes care of all of your personal sin that you uh, sincerely repent of to that moment. Okay? So, so it wipes the slate clean. That's the basic idea of it, of their baptism. Following baptism, grace, so grace is infused into you at that point through baptism. Let's just deal with it as an infant. Original sin is taken away. Your slate is clean. Grace is infused into you. You you are in that moment, should you die, you would go to heaven. You would die in that moment. Following baptism, though, grace can be tarnished or killed by commission of venial or mortal sins. All right? Just hang on to the concept. We'll come back to it. Venial or mortal sins. These must be confessed and satisfied via acts of penance. Now, test. Who developed the concept of penance? Do you remember? Third century, North Africa, began with a C, had a Y, then a P, then an R, then an I, then an A, and then an N. Oh, Cyprian, that's exactly who it was. Do you remember that? Why did he develop the concept? Do you remember that? Right. Yes, during the Diocletian persecutions, those that had denied Christ, lapsed, wanted readmission to the Lord's table. And there was a massive problem for this pastor, influential pastor, bishop, was what do we do? What do we do? I mean, Peter denied Christ. He got restored. Yeah, but see this arm that just hangs like this because they wrenched it out of the socket because I didn't deny my faith? Uh-uh. I'm not interested in being at the communion table with you who wilted. There's going to be two churches here unless something happens. So he developed the concept of penance, which was you repented of your apostasy, and you demonstrated the sincerity of your repentance through penance, deeds, good deeds, faithfulness. Seemed like a good idea. Avoided the rift that was developing. And then fast forward ideas with unforeseen consequences, and here we are. Right? That's where it comes from. Those that commit venial or mortal sins, these have to be confessed and satisfied via acts of penance. 
Upon death, the soul leaves the body and typically goes to purgatory for an indeterminate period of suffering and cleansing before it is fit to enter heaven in the presence of God. The time and degree of suffering in purgatory can be relieved by either indulgences or special masses said on behalf of the dead person. Indulgences are special gifts of grace that are accumulated in a pool of merit controlled by the Roman Catholic Church. Treasury of merit, pool of merit, the idea. This pool or treasury arises from the merit of Christ's atonement plus the excess merit of certain Roman Catholic saints whose personal merit exceeded what was necessary to assure their own entrance into heaven. So the super-duper Christians had more than enough to get in, and they had merit extra. And so it was flows into the treasury of merit, the pool of merit. By the way, the, um, the treasury of merit is controlled by the Pope and the College of Cardinals and Bishops, and it rolls down through the organization. Thus, a Roman Catholic, no matter how faithful he is to his church's teaching, never has any insurance that he will not spend time in purgatory. You don't become a saint until after you're dead. You have to be declared a saint by the church. In other words, you don't know you've got excess merit until you're dead. It is against this system of penance and indulgences, coupled with the idolatrous ceremony of the Mass, that the Reformers rebelled most strongly against. This was the what they just could not tolerate. Okay. So, salvation, simple enough. Grace is infused, it leaks back out. It can be restored through acts of penance and participation in the sacraments. Okay? That's the way the system works, keeps you in the system. But purgatory, (laughs) that really keeps you in the system. So let's talk about it a little bit. All right, we'll just start with this. So purgatory is that intermediate, intermediary state or condition in the next world where the souls of those who die in the state of grace but are not yet free of all imperfection are purified before they enter heaven. This purification consists in making satisfaction or expiation for all unforgiven venial sins or for the temporal punishment due venial and mortal sins that have already been forgiven. Okay, so understand what it's dealing with. It's dealing with um, venial sin that is not yet confessed or, you know, whatever, and mortal sin that has been confessed but it has a, has like a hangover effect that has to be burned off in this place of suffering for an indeterminate period of time. In other words, no one, including the Pope himself, knows how long you'll be there. He can get you out early, immediately even. But there's no, there's nothing written anywhere. There's no like, you know, hey, if you do 
the crime, you commit, you know, you got to serve the time kind of thing. It's just, it's not there. Venial sins. Oop, let me square it up here a little bit. There we go. Venial sin is a sin that can be forgiven. A sickness which hurts or reduces grace in our lives and which lift which left unremedied can cause mortal sin or spiritual death. In other words, you have to deal with your venial sins, otherwise they, they're like barnacles on a ship. They accumulate, and eventually they'll take you down. So what are they? Well, uh, here's some. Lies, which harm no one. That's a venial sin. Gossip. Venial sin. Getting slightly drunk. <laughs> venial sin. Eating too much. Venial sin. And stealing something cheap or inexpensive <laughs> is a venial sin. Shoplifting, probably. Modern parlance. Okay? These are, these are venial sins. They're serious. They don't kill the grace in your soul, but they, they sicken it, they damage it. They have to be confessed. Go to the confessional, confess, be assigned the various penance by the priest. So many Our Fathers and Hail Marys and so forth. Pray the rosary, those kind of things. Okay. All right, now, let's go to mortal sin. Mortal sin is a sin-causing spiritual death. So the other was a sickness. This causes death. It destroys the life of God in the soul. While the ultimate decision as to what is mortal and what is venial is determined by the priest, here is a representative listing from an adult catechetical teaching aid. Okay, did you catch that? The, your local priest determines, was this a Mortal sin, or was this a venial sin? Well, how, how many drinks did you have? Mortal sins. Missing Mass on Sunday, or a holy day without a good reason. Getting seriously drunk. Giving a bad example to your children in serious matters. Stealing something expensive. <laughs> Reading non-Catholic Bibles or books about religion. Again, that's not universal because it's determined by the local priest. So if you have a, if you have a traditional priest, then that would be emphasized. If you have a more liberal-minded priest, then probably not. They'd let you go to Bible study fellowship, for example. Okay. Do you see any subjectivity in all of this? Just a little. Okay. But you're going to purgatory in either way. I mean, it's got to be dealt with. He, he can and, and has... Yeah. 
Wait till you get to the 95 Thesis next week, right? Um, by the way, I can't be here next week. Jeff's going to um, take the class for us and uh, walk through Martin Luther's impact. We'll look at 95 Thesis, yeah, where Luther says, uh, basically, the Pope has enough in the treasury of merit to, to get everybody out. Why didn't he just do it? <laughs> yeah okay well who goes to purgatory all unbaptized adults and those who after baptism have committed mortal sin go to hell Those who have attained a state of Christian perfection go immediately to heaven. All the rest go to purgatory. Okay. What's the support for purgatory? Well, there's cultural support. The Greeks, the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all have some form of purifying place on the other side. Okay. Tradition. The concept is found in the writings of, oh, what was that guy's name? Oh, yeah. Origen. He's like a bad penny, man. He keeps coming up. Remember him? He's probably on your timeline that you're diligently working on, right? Yeah. Augustine. It was formulated by Pope Gregory the Great. Proclaimed as an article of faith at the Council of Florence in AD 1438, and the doctrine was reconfirmed at the Second Vatican Council in AD 1964. Okay? So, is purgatory still very much live in Roman Catholic theology? You bet it is. It's essential. Helps keep you in the system. Kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme. I'm sure tonight there are some of you who have been saved out of Roman Catholicism and understand the deliverance involved and, and what you've been released from. Yep. What scriptural support is found? Well, really nothing. Uh, the best passage they've got is 2 Maccabees 12, 39 to 45, which, let's see, did I bring that with me? I think I did. Let's see. Oh, yeah, here we go. You ready for it? You'll love it. Can you read that? No, I'll read it to you. You can look it up on your own, but here it is. Second Maccabees 12, 39 to 45. 39. On the next day, as by that time it had become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. So they're going to click the deck, going to get the dead bodies. This is, the, this is during the Maccabean period, so this is during the, the, um, uh, the period following the return from the Babylonian captivity prior to the starting of the, of the New Testament. Okay? Then, under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. 
So they all bless the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turn to prayer, beseeching that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. There it is. And the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking for the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Hope you're convinced. It's best I got. Yeah. Yeah, it's tradition. That's tradition. Yeah, exactly. How do you get out of purgatory once you get in? Time, indulgences. Serve your time. And we're talking millions of years here, by the way. Or receive an indulgence, which shortens your stay. Indulgences are the excess merit of Christ, Mary, the saints stored up under the control of the Pope. They can be dispensed in exchange for the prayers and good works of those on earth and for the benefit of those in purgatory. Or a proper financial gift. spiritual bitcoin i love it (laughs) yeah it's it's, yeah okay (laughs) next week uh oh no wait a minute there was i'm sorry a couple of things i wanted to say before we did that um The Roman Catholic Church outlawed the sale of indulgences in 1567. Prior to that, they were for sale. And that was Luther's big beef with Tetzel. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You could buy and store uh, indulgences, and then those are your get-out-of-jail-free cards. So salvation was definitely for sale. So they outlawed it in 1567. And one might think it went away, but it did not. It did not. This is, the article is dated now, but this is a New York Times article dated February 10th, 2009. And it says, well, let's see, how do I summarize this? Well, uh, basically, indulgences are back. That's what the article says. And it says, uh, for example, the website of the Diocese of Brooklyn announced that any Catholic could receive an indulgence at any of the six churches on any day or dozens more on specific days by fulfilling the basic requirements. Going to confession, receiving Holy Communion, saying a prayer for the Pope, and achieving, quote, complete detachment from any inclination to sin, close quote. 
The indulgences, experts said, tend to be advertised more openly in dioceses where the bishop is more traditionalist or in places where fewer tensions between liberal and conservative Catholics exist. Getting Catholics back into confession, in fact, was one of the motivations for reintroducing indulgences. Why? The attendance at the masses were falling. And so they brought indulgences back. So, are they gone? Are they a relic of the, you know, of the, the 500 years ago? Nope. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Well, okay, so that's a good question. Can you buy them? Technically, no. Can you make a generous financial gift in exchange for special masses to be said? on behalf of your loved one, your your grandmother or something, to shorten her stay in purgatory? Yes. Yes. Can you purchase candles to be lit that somehow contribute to that? Yes. And then they the right. They do, they do the pageant just like we talked about last week. Viewers <laughs> like you. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. Guys, it is sad. Right? Yeah. Different different ways to get the old Pope to open his closed fist and let a little grace out. So, yeah. It's tragic. So, what's the uh, evangelistic slash apologetic approach to Roman Catholicism? It's their uncertainty. Deal with their uncertainty. They, they never can know. Because salvation is a process in their theology. But we know that justification by grace through faith alone is an event. It's a legal declaration. So, they convolute sanctification and justification. So, okay? Is that making sense? All right. 734. All right, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to hold you just for a couple more minutes, if you don't mind. I just want to introduce you quickly to a couple of people, okay? That, very distinguished-looking man, don't you think? That is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation. So he was a, a um, an English priest. He lived uh, 1331 to 1384. So you can see that he predates Luther by a hundred hundred years. Okay, so he uh, his he was opposed to certain abuses within Roman Catholicism. So he's, they call him the Morning Star of the Reformation. Right? The Morning Star is is that Venus? Is that what the Morning Star is? I think that's right. It's the it's the one that rises first. Isn't that what that means? Come on, help me out. Hangs on the longest. Is that what that means? 
Yeah, he's a morning star. He hangs on the longest. I don't know. He's not a morning star. That's all I know. <laughs> anyway, uh, he had a group of followers. They were known as Lollards, and they went around preaching evangelistically in England in contradiction to the king. His emphasis was on individual interpretation of the Bible as the best guide to a moral life, as opposed to the church's emphasis on receiving sacraments as the only way of salvation. Second, he insisted that holiness of an individual was more important than official office. That is, a truly pious person was morally superior to a wicked, ordained cleric. And finally, he attacked the exorbitant luxury and pomp of the churches and their ceremonies. He completed his translation directly, English translation of the Bible first, directly from the Vulgate, so Jerome's Vulgate, into vernacular English in the year 1382. It's known as Wycliffe's Bible. He died of natural causes, and then 43 years later, his body was dug up and burned, and then they scattered his ashes, okay, because they hate him. Okay, so that's Wycliffe. I'm going somewhere with this. This rather austere-looking character is William Tyndale. So William Tyndale was also an Englishman. He lived 1494 to 1536. He was a scholar. He was fluent in the languages, the original languages. He profited from Erasmus' New Testament translation. And he was the first to create an English Bible directly from the Greek and the Hebrew. A really fine translation. He lived on the run in Europe under uh, false identities, um, constantly being hunted by uh, authorities of the church. And eventually he was betrayed by a confidant uh, who was a spy. And he was not, he was a very trusting man. And uh, he, this spy got weaseled into his confidence and, and um, betrayed him. And so he was arrested in 1535. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burnt at the stake. His dying prayer was that the king of England's eyes would be opened and seemed to find its fulfillment just two years later when Henry's authorization of the great Bible for the Church of England, which was largely Tyndale's own work. In 1611, the 54 scholars who produced the King James Bible drew significantly from Tyndale's translation as well. So Tyndale's translation is very fundamental and foundational to the English Bible. So um, I don't remember. Do you guys have this in the... Did I put this into your syllabus? This Bible? I think I did. I think I did. Somebody, somebody give us a page number here, quick. Is that it? No. Is it page 79? Chart of the English Bible. Page 79. Yep, there you go. Okay, I just pointed out to you, we're not going to spend any time trying to trace through it, uh, and it is, now it's a little more dated, it doesn't have the ESV in it, and you know, some of the more, um, more recent ones, thank you, and uh, it's always good to hear from the peanut gallery, <laughs> but at least it gives you an idea of the, of the flow of the of the um, English Bible and how it came to us, okay? So, but we are, in large degree, dependent upon the work of Tyndale 
and a beneficiary of it. Okay. I couldn't figure out where else to put that in, but that's where it is. I'll give you one more, and I'm going to let you go. I'm going to give you two more and let you go. I'm going to talk to you quickly about the magisterial reformers. You see it on page 24. It's in a little box, a little text box. These are just things that are important to know, but I couldn't figure out where else to put them in, so here they are. Okay? This, we're, going to, we're going to speak more of this concept when we talk about the Reformation itself. But the magisterial reformers, the term refers to those reformers who believed in the idea of a Christian nation. Okay, that's the big, big takeaway. Christian nation. Entered into through physical birth for citizenship and infant baptism for spiritual membership. In other words, that society and the church were seen as circles that overlapped. So you came into the uh, citizenship in, in, as a citizen of uh, the King of England through birth in England, and uh, through your baptism you were born into the Church of England. And those circles overlapped. These reformers believed that spiritual crimes, such as immorality or heresy, called for both ecclesiastical and civil penalties. This was their worldview. Because of their views, they were forced to live with the tension of wanting a confessional church based upon personal faith and experience, but were forced to settle for a mixed multitude based on national citizenship. They constantly struggled with a church of tares and couldn't deal with it because they didn't have the categories to deal with it. Unless, you know, it was uh, rampant immorality or overt heresy, in which case they would take you out of the church and chop your head off and deal with you that way. If it was just sort of run-of-the-mill sin, they had no church discipline concepts. Couldn't put you out of the church. Okay? So... That was their mindset, we'll, and we'll deal with that. I'll just, I'll just point this out to you. You can just see it. It's on page 28. Corpus Christianum and Corpus Christi. Okay? We'll spend some time with that when we get there. The other one, just a historical note on the bottom of page 24, and then I really will let you go. Prior to 1456, okay, check this out. Prior to 1456, few people owned Bibles or books of any kind. It's stunning. Monks copied texts by hand onto papyrus sheets or parchment made from animal skins, a very laborious and expensive project. With the invention of the movable type printing press, by Johann Gutenberg, the Bible was liberated from the confines of the relatively unknown language of Jerome's Latin translation, the Vulgate, and soon became available in the vernacular of the people. Without a doubt, the Reformation would never have occurred without the aid of the printing press. In other words, Tyndale's translations were rapidly, you know, that they would be typeset and printed up and sold a book at a time. And the proceeds from the sales of those would finance the next edition where they would make improvements and so forth. And the uh, Catholic Church, in, or not the Catholic Church in, in England, but the, the uh, Church of England, uh, would buy them all up and burn them. And Tyndale would take the profits and 
produce a better translation and send it back out. Okay? And that's how it worked. But it's all because of the movable type printing press. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.